So today we're continuing our look at Matthew chapter 14. Um, This week we're talking about traditions. And so I was thinking about my family and some of the traditions that we have. My kids have an interesting view on family traditions. Just two years ago, we went on our first ever family vacation. Now that doesn't mean we're just terrible parents and we never take them anywhere. But what I mean is it's the first one where Katie and I, we did everything. We planned out the trip. We ordered the tickets. We scouted out the hotels. We put together an itinerary. We did all of it. No help from our in-laws or other members of our family. And it was amazing. We had a great time. I know when we talk about where we went, people go, really? But we went to Ohio. Yes, Ohio, on purpose. We also visited Kentucky and Indiana and a few other states there. But our kids loved it. We had a great time. And we made a big deal of it because my oldest was 12 years old and he had never been on a family vacation like this. So we told them, this is our first ever family vacation. How awesome is this? Maybe kind of wanting that little pat on the back that we never get from our kids, but maybe someday, right? So we took this vacation, and then at the end of the year, we talked about, what do we want to do this next year? And one of my kids said, well, we need to go on our second annual family vacation. It's like, when was the first annual? Oh, I guess that. So in their minds, we had done it once, so now it needs to be a tradition, And isn't that the case sometimes, especially with my children? We do it one time, and it's like, we always do it. We've only done it once. Come on. But that's the way they responded. Traditions are something that we all have. The word tradition comes from the Latin. Tra means across, and dition means to give. So it means to give across, to give across generations. When we talk about traditions, we're talking about behaviors and actions and things that people do in groups, whether it be families, societies, or churches. Now, when we think of tradition, I know I'm going to lose a few of you on this, but for lots of us, we go to a specific song from Fiddler on the Roof. And for those of you that don't know that song, you're in luck. I'm not going to sing it. You can thank me later because it will get stuck in your head for the next week or two. So you're welcome that I'm not singing that. But in it, Tevia, the the lead singer, talks about, we have all these traditions. We don't know why they're here, but we do them, and we continue to do them. So maybe when we talk about tradition, that's what you have in mind. It's just something we do. Others of us look at it and say, it's these things that are oppressing us and keeping us from free expression. Maybe it's unwritten codes, regulations. But if we think about it, traditions are something we do, and many times we push them forward. Our families, we have traditions. We always eat certain dishes at certain times of the year. I mean, try doing something like not eating turkey at Thanksgiving and eating fish tacos, which we did this year, actually, and see how that goes with the six-year-old in your family. We never eat anything but turkey. You've only been around for six years, (laughs) right? So that's one of the ways. Another way we use tradition is we start off with, we take our kids and we say, this is what we do, right? And we start very young. We say, "These these are the attitudes and actions we want. So we put up a structure. For example, teaching a little boy how to aim 
and then put down the toilet seat. It's a family tradition. We want the toilet seat down. The ladies appreciate it, right? You didn't think we were going here today, did you? Or for the daughter, and you go, you must brush your hair before you go to bed. Or when you wake up in the morning, it's worse than the Christmas lights, all tangled together, right? And so we teach our children these things because we want to get a certain action out of them. We want them to be a you know, member of society that is able to do the normal things. Washing hands before dinner. Appropriate dinner conversation and sounds. <laughs> Whether you chew with a mouth open or closed. These are all traditions as, that we've put in. And I, I, I'm making light of them because they're there. And if those traditions are the reason why someone belongs to our family, we've got them backwards. See, if I go to my son and I say, hey, if you burp at the dinner table, you're not a part of this family anymore. I have now elevated the burping to the reason you're a part of this family, as opposed to, in our family, we don't burp at the dinner table, okay? This is what we do. See, that's the thing is traditions take the focus off of the end result and put them on the means. And this is what Jesus is dealing with here. This tradition that we saw that, that Rick just read about the washing of hands is not a bad idea. It's actually a good idea. As a matter of fact, they didn't do it because it was cleanliness. They did it because it was a sacrifice to the Lord. And it has a good reason for it. However, the Pharisees and the religious people of the time had elevated the doing it to make you a part of God's family. Not you're a part of God's family, so you do it. So our main idea today from the passage is the Pharisees think too highly of their own teaching and not high enough of Jesus. So for us, we want to look at it and say what traditions in our lives, whether they be church-wide traditions or things that I do in my own personal life, what things am I elevating above God's Word? Our lifestyle needs to flow out of God's Word, not I have this lifestyle, therefore I'm right with God. Now some of you may be like, okay, this seems like a for church people only type of conversation. We have traditions, and we're, we're following Jesus, and so we have these traditions. But let me, understand, let me help you understand that it doesn't matter what we do or what we don't do that makes us right with Jesus. And that's the best news in the world. What makes us right with Jesus is Jesus and our relationship to him. And then those do's and don'ts come out of that. And so today, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have something that you think makes you right with the, the universe or makes you right with society or maybe makes you right with God that you're doing or not doing. And I'm going to tell you, that doesn't work. What works is your faith and trust in Jesus. So let's get into it because we need to see this in the passage. So the setting, starting in verse 35. Verse 34 talks about they landed in Gennesaret. We talked about that last week. Verse 35 and the men of that place recognized him, that's Jesus. They sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Notice all the absolutes in this. We see the word all twice. All the people from brought all the sick. And they said, all we need to do is just touch you. The only thing we need to do is touch the hem of your garment. 
Then we see as many as touched. That's the same word as all. All that touched. Every single one that touched was healed. And that made well at the end actually means made complete. So they were, they were healed of all their diseases. And this is a nice little summary. So where we're at right now, we're finishing up the book, the first half of the book of, of, of Matthew. We are halfway done. And at this point, Jesus is setting his sights on leaving Galilee, working around Galilee, not being there anymore, and then eventually ending up in Jerusalem. So he's working his way there. The people recognized him. Now, what did they recognize? Well, they recognized he works miracles or does something. Remember, he just fed 5,000 men and 15,000 women and children. He just walked on water. He just calmed the storm. Then they bring all these people to him. They see him as a source of life. People still, to this day, come to Jesus for life. And then implored him. They, they pleaded with him. This is Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. People bring their problems to him, and he heals them. He gives them more of him. So what would a good response be in this situation? Something like, who are you? That'd be good. Maybe better would be, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to tuck, you know, hit this power? So we see a correct response. At least we understand one. We're going to see an incorrect response here from the religious groups. The religious groups, the Pharisees, are coming to visit. Okay, Religious groups, they believe, the Pharisees specifically taught that you needed to be really careful about going out in public. Like they would have been totally for all the hand sanitizing stations we had all over the place and all the social distancing because the Pharisees believed that you didn't want to accidentally become unclean. Now the uncleanness they're talking about isn't always sin. When we think unclean, we're probably thinking sin because that's where our minds go thanks to some of the ways Paul taught about uncleanness. But that's not what they meant. They meant ceremonially unclean. This just meant that they were dirty and needed to be cleaned before they could do their temple activities. However, Jesus did not make himself unclean with all these people touching him. I mean, that, that's a Pharisee's nightmare, right? All these people, every single one of them is touching Jesus, and how many of them are clean or unclean? Well, mostly unclean. But for Jesus, instead, he's the clean one, and he makes everyone else clean, and we've seen that already. So this is the setting. Now let's look at the charge. Verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. So the first thing we notice is that we see these two groups, Pharisees and scribes. We're going to talk about them in a moment. But we see where they came from is being emphasized here. Why is that? Well, this is a quasi-official visit from the leaders of the religious groups. There were lots of Pharisees in Galilee. There was no shortage of Pharisees and scribes. We've already seen Jesus encountering them. So what's the big deal here? Well, these are the bigwigs. These are the people that when they showed up, it was awe and respect. Most of the people in Galilee would have been in awe of them, not only because of their dress, but because of where they're from. It would be like me as someone who, who teaches the Bible, I get a knock on my door and I open the door and in walks a Bible scholar from Yale and from Harvard and from Oxford and they go, sit down, we need to talk. There's a greater zeal and authority here. See, Galilee is the backwoods. It's, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere by the minds of the people at this time. 
So this is kind of foreshadowing the confrontation that's going to be at the crux of Jesus' crucifixion. But look at this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? See, that's like going up to a firefighter who's just pulled a baby out of a burning building, and you're the news reporter, and with your first question, you go, you know, I hear your brother's rooting for the eagles. Is that true? I mean, that's the wrong question. I mean, you should be asking questions about the fire, how's the baby doing, are you healthy, what is it like to be a hero, all of these questions, but instead you ask him something that really doesn't matter by comparison. See, this is what the Pharisees have done. They have the God of the universe standing in front of them in the flesh, and they want to know about something washing hands. Now, let's understand that washing of the hands was a very important thing. The religious members of the Jewish society took this very seriously. As a matter of fact, all throughout Israel, there were these things called mikvahs, which look like they should be hot tubs, but they're not. They're just pools, and these pools were places where they would walk in and bathe themselves before they did some activity. The richest people had their own so that they could be cleaner than the regular people. At the temple, they would have 20 or 30 of these, and there would be a constant line of people going into the mikvahs. Because like I said before, uncleanness was contagious. You didn't want to accidentally bump into someone and make yourself unclean. So to combat that, the, the religious leaders made all sorts of rules. So let's talk about these religious rulers, because they're going to be in the rest of the book of Matthew. As we go through the next 14 chapters of Matthew, they are throughout. So I want to make sure we get our minds wrapped around this. The first group is the scribes. Now, a scribe is kind of like a lawyer, with the difference being that he's not going to go and argue before a court. As a matter of fact, their job was to study the law and transcribe it. They would make copies of it so that everybody had copies. The most famous scribe is Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. The scribes took their job seriously. The only people that were more serious were the Pharisees. These men would copy the Bible over and over again. In fact, they would count up the number of letters and spaces on a page and make sure it matched the one that they had just copied. And if it didn't, they'd throw that one away and start over again. They were meticulous. We have our Bibles, especially the Old Testament, because of scribes. There were scribes in the New Testament too. Paul had one that went around with him and wrote down all the things that he did. Paul didn't write them. He dictated them. So these Jewish people were people of the book. They passed down the words. The scribes would have been like the person taking notes. The Pharisees were a whole different thing. The Pharisees, by one author, were called the serious people. Their name came from a word that meant separated or put aside. So if you want to kind of imagine, this is your church curmudgeon, okay? I love that word, curmudgeon. A curmudgeon is someone who is always serious, bad-tempered, and focuses on the negative. So the Pharisees were very much like that. Now, that doesn't mean they were always like that, but in their interactions with Jesus, they were most decidedly a curmudgeon. They were very influential, middle-class men, and they taught at the synagogues. These were the teachers in all of the religious gatherings. And they taught that all of the law, all of the written, as well as all of the orally transmitted, this is the things that different rabbis have taught, were on the same footing. They were exactly the same. So we have what Moses wrote down and then what Rabbi so-and-so said are on equal footing. So they had elevated the traditions. Interesting, there's a group called the Essenines that came out of the Pharisees 
They took the washing things so serious that when they fled to the desert, to Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, they were in the desert, and yet they still had pools that they would bathe in and not use for drinking. So they're, they're putting their lives on the line so that they can stay clean, and they would do it 7 to 20 times a day, and it had to be fresh water. It wasn't the same old nasty water over and over again. So they're, they're saying it's more important that I be clean than that I be hydrated well. I mean, that's really their mindset. So the Pharisees took it very seriously. This is why they walked 90 miles to ask Jesus a question. So this must be a very important question, right? It was calculated. It was well thought out. This question was not to get Jesus to answer it. It was to make Jesus get in line. Your disciples who you teach are doing it wrong. Get in line. They thought they had figured it all out, like a lawyer who in cross-examining knows what the person's going to answer before they answer it. They thought they had Jesus trapped. So they direct their attack in verse 2 at Jesus' disciples. Notice that the word there, break and wash, in the Greek are in present tense, meaning they continuously break the law. They continuously stop washing. I wonder if this is in response to the 5,000 feeding, because there's nothing about washing hands up on the mountain there. Either way, the disciples have broken the law, and they're attacking the disciples. Spurgeon says this, A good man is often held responsible for the actions of his followers. If Christ's enemies cannot find fault with him, they'll find fault with his disciples. And these men must have been very admirable in character because the scribes and Pharisees could not charge anything to them except for lack of hand washing. Our Savior must truly have been gentle to bear with people like these Pharisees. Jesus was healing the sick, curing the lepers, and feeding the hungry, but the religious leaders were talking about hand washing. This is common among religious people who tend to occupy their time with nothing of vital importance. This tradition of the elders, they, they had this tradition, we have to do certain things, and if we don't do it, we're in the wrong. These Pharisees have elevated it, which is ironic because the Pharisees have God's Word memorized, right? They've memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. And in those first five books is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 4, it says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. What's he saying? He's saying, don't add to what I've commanded you to help you keep my commandments. It's good as it is. Don't take away from my commandments. It's good as it is. And yet the Pharisees are like, well, we got to add a bunch of commandments to be able to do these. And then they enforced them on the people. See, traditions are not automatically bad. They started off good. But for many Jews, they were stuck in the same place as Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. Why do we have these traditions? I don't know, is his response. Same thing goes here. They didn't understand the purpose. They'd lost the reason. And instead, they were focused on the doing. The Pharisees and the religious people were leading the people astray. We have copies of what the Pharisees taught. It's called the Mishnah. It still exists to this day. And they would wash their hands before a meal and after a meal and sometimes during a meal. And this is what they would do. They would have their hands straight up like this and they would pour the water so that the water went down past their wrists on both hands. Then they would turn their hands over and they would pour it again. And then they would put their hands together and they would pour it in. And then they'd stick their left arm in and their left arm out. And they'd shake, right? They'd do all of these things. But you think about it, right? If you're talking about purity, so you touch the, 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 the pitcher 
And then you switch hands, now this hand's unpure. So you had to have an elaborate system of somebody who was unclean doing all the pouring, and then somebody who's clean would clean the cup, and then you can see how this is a long, arduous process. As a matter of fact, the really strict Pharisees, after each plate, after each portion of the dinner, would stop and do the whole thing again. So you can imagine at some of these, these feasts, right? You're at a, at a wedding feast, and it's, it's a seven-course meal, and the Pharisees are like, hold up, everybody. we got to do our little thing, our dance. This would happen every single time. So where did this come from? Well, in Exodus 30, the priests were required to wash this way, and it was solely for the priests. But over time, the Pharisees said, we need to extend this to everybody because us priests, you know, we washed ourselves. But if I go outside and I bump into this person, now I'm unclean and I have to wash myself again and so on. So this was their rule, which is ironic. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, writes, men think God's laws are too many and too strict. And yet they make up more rules to keep those laws, which is very much what we see here. The Apostle Paul, who had been a Pharisee, understood this. In Romans, he writes, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is saying, it's, let's focus not on the doing, but the being. Let's focus not on putting the toilet seat down, but whose family you belong to. You belong to the family, so you are this way. Not you do this to become part of the family. So Jesus now gives the response. Verse 3, he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So Jesus actually doesn't even respond to hand washing here. He goes right back to them and says, You're actually the ones that are breaking the law. See, the problem was is that tradition and God's word were butting heads, and the Pharisees have said, Yeah, we'll take tradition. Another way to think about this is that the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to look good without actually being good. The rules the Pharisees were putting out there were not bad in among themselves, but they thought that's what made them right with God, not a heart change. The problem was that they were missing the point. The means had taken over the ends. The way to get, the way to show that you belong had now become the reason why you belong. So Jesus lays out the fifth commandment. What, are, what is he getting at here? Let's look at verse 5, and he explains himself. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. So let me explain this. This is a little confusing. In the, in the book of Mark, he tells the same story, but he uses this word called Corbin, which means devoted to God. It's also a college down the street. But this, this, this idea here kind of gets a little confusing, so let me explain it. The way it works is that if I take something that is mine and I say, I devote this to the Lord, it now becomes God's until either I die or I say, okay, now you can take it. So if I say, my bank account belongs to God, then by law, by the Pharisees' understanding, I can't give that to anybody else except for God, and probably not until I die. Okay, so you probably are starting to see the loophole here, right? In, in ancient times, the elderly, the people that were the father and mother of the family, when they were no longer able to work, were to be cared for by their children, usually in the same house, sometimes in a different house, but they were to be cared for. Well, the children at this time didn't like this. They were going, 
man, we're having to pay all this money to take care of mom and dad? Oh, what? So what they would say is, ah, we're going to donate all of our money to God. We get to still use it for the next 20, 30 years. But whenever dad goes, hey, I'm hungry, sorry, pops, that, that money's going to God. I can't do anything but spend it on myself. See how ridiculous that is? But that was the rule that they had established, and they'd found this little loophole here. Not to mention what that would do to your children if you gave all your money away as well. He says, you void God's word, meaning to break God's word. The tradition is allowing them to break it. This idea of giving all of your money to God is not a bad thing, right? We're not saying, Jesus isn't saying don't do this. It's actually really good, but the problem was was that their root was in the wrong place. Their root was, I'm going to take care of me, not I'm going to give to God. See, it isn't the dollar amount, it's the fact that they had given to the Lord with the wrong intentions. You can be doing really great things in your life for the wrong reasons, and the, the Lord goes, that doesn't do it. It's not working for me. I mean, you have to ask yourself, I know I ask myself, are there areas where I excel in and am I doing that excelling because I have an area that I'm not willing to let the Lord discipline me in and take my eyes off my sin? See, the typical way we go whenever we see something that's convicting us is we try to find a way around it. Oh, I'm convicted about this sin. Oh, it was just some bad pizza. Oh, I'm convicted about this sin. Well, I'm not doing that sin. Right? We try to find all of these ways around it. J.C. Ryle says, he establishes the great truth which never ought to be forgotten, that there's an inherent tendency in all traditions to make the commands of God void. The authors of these traditions meant no such thing. Their intentions were pure, but there's a tendency in all religious institutions of mere human authority to usurp the authority of God's word. See, the, the, the spirit of the Pharisees are still alive and well. Anytime we go, I have to do this thing to be made right with God, we are right on the border of Pharisaicalism. In a few weeks, or not even a few weeks, Lent will be upon us. That 40 days leading into Easter. People will fast from food and drink, but yet not deal with the gross immorality in their lives. We do the same thing whether you do Lent or not. We say, I won't watch any R-rated movies. I, I won't swear. I won't dance. I won't drink. But yet I'm going to be the meanest person anybody knows. I'm the biggest gossip. I'm indulging in pornography on the side. See, that's the thing is that we want the part that doesn't convict us right here, and we'll do that one really well, but we won't deal with the other one. And that's what happens with the traditions of man. When I think I'm made right by something I do, See, Jesus isn't throwing out the law. He's not saying, don't do these things. He's saying, do these things, but for the right reason, from the heart. We've seen this in the Beatitudes, haven't we? The Beatitudes were all about the heart. It's not about what you do with your mouth. It's not about what you do with your body that makes you right with God. It's whose heart is it. Is it your heart or is it his? Tradition looks at the letter of the law and finds loopholes. Lord's Spirit comes in and says, this is what your heart should be like. So why is it that Jesus is dealing with this? Well, there's two reasons why traditions are exceptionally dangerous. The first one is that traditions value comfort over biblical truth. 
They say, I, this is the way we've always done it. I feel really comfortable here, and it's exactly what I want. It makes me feel good. The problem with that is, is that sometimes what makes you feel good is not what the Bible tells you to do. It's as simple as that. And when you do that, when you take comfort and you say, this is the determiner of right and wrong, you have taken comfort and made it into an idol. And this is really easy for us in America to do because there are as an entire, there's hundreds of industries out there that are making money on telling people this is how you get comfortable. And that's what we have to really fight against because like one of the reformers said, the heart is an idol factory. It produces idols. Idolatry wins over God's word when we say comfort is what's most important, not God's word. So that's the first thing that tradition do. The second one, this one is the big one. This is the big baddie. This is the boss monster. Traditions lead to false security. Traditions lead to false security. When I follow a tradition, when the tradition says, if you abstain from this or you do this, you are right with God, I am following a lie. I'm following a lie. Because those things do not save. Only Christ's work on the cross saves. And this is terrifying because we could have somebody who looks like the best Christian on the planet, abstains from all the bad things, only does all the good things, and they are on their way to hell. This is huge. This is the, I put the toilet seat down, that means I'm a part of the family. No, no, no. Anytime I say, I did this, therefore I belong to God, we got it backwards. We got it wrong. This is the devil's number one play. I mean, you guys get that this is what every other religion in the world does. If you pray this direction five times a day, you're saved. If you give to this church, you're saved. If you come and you do these special rites right before you die, you're saved. If you take your mind and empty it of everything, you're saved. And on and on and on again. Our deepest temptation is to do the same thing. It's to grab a hold of those things and say, I am right with God because I did that. And here's the saddest part of all, is this puts up a wall between us who know better and are maybe followers of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and those people outside these walls. It puts up a wall. They say, I've never desired to put the toilet seat down. I'm never going to put the toilet seat down. I have no idea how to. So there's no way I can be a part of that family. You see, that's what we do when we start saying, you got to change your actions before you can walk in these doors. The heart must be changed first. Then once the heart's changed, everything else comes out of that. We can't get those two out of order. And Jesus corrects this by returning to what really matters. So let's look at the solution. The solution. First thing Jesus does is he makes sure that everybody understands who he's talking to. He says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. This is the first time Jesus calls them that. It means someone who says one thing and does another. It's a term that means an actor. I once heard a story about the loggers up in the mountains. And, and the story goes like this. There was a reporter standing by the loggers and there were these huge trees every once in a while in the forest, and the logger would say, not that one. We're not taking the big one. And the reporter's like, why not? 
Look how big it is. That one's like twice the size of these. Why are we taking these? He goes, here's the deal. A tree to get that tall and to be where it's at now has to be hollow on the inside. It's rotten down the middle. You've all seen this, right? When we have a windstorm and you're looking at these gigantic trees and you're like, if you had to pick, you'd say, these small ones, they're, they're young and you know, they're going to fall over. That big one, that's going to stand forever. And then wind, why? Because it's hollow in the inside. This is what the hypocrites were like. They were these paragons of truth, and they're from Jerusalem. They look great. They were, they, they were awesome, but yet they were hollow on the inside. So a good word for hypocrite is phony. So let's look at verse 7 again. You phonies, well did Isaiah prophesy of you and say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying, your traditions are taking precedence over God's word. This is not a new thing. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 29. He said, the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. These men are lip holy and heart hollow. And that's what these hypocrites are teaching others to do. This idea of teaching as doctrines, what he's saying is you are teaching God's word and right next to it you're teaching the word of men and it is deathly. It's bad. We do not want that in there. Lest you think we don't do this, we do. When I, if I were to ask you what makes a good Christian, you could probably come up with a pretty good list. Maybe it's they don't watch certain movies, they don't go to certain places, they don't use these words, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't. Now, these things have value. Absolutely. If the Holy Spirit's put it on your heart, don't watch these movies, you better not. If the Holy Spirit says, don't say certain things, you better not. Right? Because that's what it's about, is having the Holy Spirit speak to you. The Lord has kept me from sinning by saying, you know what? There's a certain kind of movie that you're not going to be putting on. There's a certain type of music that leads you to bad places. You're not going to be doing that. There's certain friends you need to kind of distance from. You're not going to do that. So praise the Lord for those, but that doesn't make me right with God. It's a means by making me right with God. Maybe for some of you, it's not the do-nots, it's the do. Go to church, read your Bible, pray, tithe, volunteer, take meals to a neighbor. Again, these are the things we are commanded to do, and they are good for us to do. Don't hear me say that we're not to do them. But if the reason, if someone were to ask you, what makes you think you're saved, and you respond, I pray every day, I go to church, I tithe, I don't watch R-rated movies, I don't swear, all of the above does not make you right with God. It should be proof that you're already right with God. So avoiding things is leading, that leads to sin is good, but it should come from a heart that belongs to Jesus. Doing things that the commanded in Scripture, good. In fact, we are supposed to do them, but it comes from a heart that belongs to Jesus. So how do we get our minds wrapped around this? This is a diagnostic passage this week and next week when we start talking about the tongue. The question is, is where am I making my focus? Is my focus on the things I'm doing to get right with God and that's my intentional focus? Or is my focus on, Lord, I want you, make my heart right Am I fixating on the means by which the Lord's going to make me right, or am I fixating on the heart? Am I going to the heart? The Pharisees believed that their actions made them right with the Lord. 
instead of remembering that the reason they belong to the family is because they were chosen by God. Again, the Pharisees know their Bible. The Pharisees are saying, we wash three times a day, we wash ten times at every meal, we do all of these things which makes us right with God. They're missing it. What makes them right with God was that God went, hey, look at there's that scruffy little group of Israelites. They're mine now. And I, it, didn't he have to grab them by the scruff of their neck, right? Kind of shake them around a little bit to get their attention? Look at Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you're more in number than any other that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He did not choose Israel because they were the best. Might be actually when we get to heaven, we find out they might have been the worst, right? And that's to encourage us as well. It's not that we can do all the things that God called us to that makes us right with him. It's the fact that he resides in us that makes us right with him and makes us able to do that. Pharisees, again, they missed this. They say they honor their parents, but they twist the law to do it because holiness is not possible aside from a heart change. And unless your heart is right with the Lord, holiness is not going to happen. Without it, holiness becomes legalism and we substitute all sorts of vain things in its place. The Pharisees had a heart condition, but they disguised it. And they covered it up with fake holiness. See, the thing about it is, is you need to get that Jesus' way is good. Jesus' way covers all of our problems. Christ welcomes us not based on our performance in the past or in the future, but on Him. On his love. I chose you, why? Because I chose you. I chose you, why? Because I love you. What did I do to deserve it? Actually, you were the exact opposite. You didn't deserve any of it. But praise be to God, I grabbed a hold of you. The traditions of man will never do that. So how is holiness possible? It's a heart change. It comes from inside and works its way out. Not outside working its way in. The Lord wants the heart change. Look at Matthew 6.21. We've already seen this. I told you the Sermon on the Mount was all about the heart. He says, for where your, heart, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. This shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this before. Remember when Samuel is going to look for King David, and all the sons of Jesse come out, and they line up, and he goes, ooh, that one looks like a king. That one looks like a king. Samuel hears from the Lord, do not look on the appearances or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord is after our hearts. But you say, I have a bad heart. All I ever do is bad. I am the exact opposite of anything you've been describing. Well, again, return to that promise in Ezekiel. Look at it. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Lord says, all I want you to do is to say, Lord, fix my heart. And then I take it from there. And then everything comes from that. This is the goal of all traditions. This is the goal of all of our actions. 
So we as a church, we need to constantly be looking. Where is it that we have a tradition instead of following Scripture? I think David Watson put it the best. This is what he said, and this is, this is good. Christian work is constantly crippled by clinging to blessings and traditions of the past. God is not the God of yesterday. He is the God of today. Heaven forbid that we should go on playing religious games in one corner when the cloud and the fire has moved to another. See, that's where we want to be. We want to follow the Lord wherever he's going. And the way that he shows us where he's going is through his word, not through traditions, not through ways that we've done things in the past. Now, sometimes, praise be to God, the way forward is to go back and do some of those things that we've done in the past. But just because it's what we've done here doesn't mean we're going to do it here. Just because this is the thing he's called me to do, that doesn't make me right with the Lord when I do it. What makes me right is a heart change. We want a heart change, and we want to follow the Holy Spirit wherever he is leading us. Am I putting my actions up there as the reason I have hope, or am I putting my hope in Christ? Now, it's easy to see Jesus here and be like, go get those stupid Pharisees, Jesus. No, instead, what this is, is this is an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and say, where are we practicing legalism? And all legalism is isn't making these elaborate rules. It's simply believing the rules save you. And if we believe the rules save us, we're in a bad company, right? We're, we're right there with the Pharisees. So Jesus is teaching us, don't enthrone tradition. Don't enthrone the things that I have called you to do after you know me as the way to be saved. Instead, keep me on my throne. So now as we finish up, we need to look at ourselves. Where is it that we are going, this saves me, and not Christ in my heart. Let us settle in our minds that unless we come here on Sundays, when we go to our Bible studies, we go to our life groups, we go to all those different activities, unless we go and have our hearts be focused on Him, we are doing it in vain. I cannot hear you. Your heart is far from me. That's a terrible place to be in when we're sitting there offering worship, when we're bowing our heads when we're saying the amens, when we're reading our Bibles, when we're studying. Instead, what we need to do is we need to answer the question that he asks us. Do you love me with, yes, Lord, help me love you more. Yes, Lord, I want more of you. That's the focus of everything that we do here. That's the focus of everything we all need to be pursuing in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis is, Lord, I love you, help me love you more. And then what comes out of that is gonna be epic. Let's be where the Lord is working. Let's let the Lord work on our hearts today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need your help with this. This is, this is a hard teaching, Lord. It's hard because there are things that, that we like to do, I like to do. And Lord, maybe those things don't match up with your word. So, Lord, we need to put those on the altar and sacrifice those. There's other things, Lord, that, that I don't like to do that we are doing and we need to still keep doing. Lord, help me to sacrifice my comfort. Because, Lord, if your word is telling us to do it, we need to do it with all our might. And, Lord, when it comes to the things that you have asked us to do in response to the work you've done on our heart, please don't let us elevate that to what saves us. 
Lord, don't let us elevate the things we do to where your son rightly belongs. Lord, your son died in our place on our behalf. Help us never to put something else up there. Help us to see it rightly. Lord, now as we worship together in song, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.